a new facility. As Jeff said, it's just, it's just a beautiful, incredible facility. And, uh, and it, is, it is just about done. They've got some finishing touches that are happening. We are finally feeling like the end is near. You can see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's rapidly approaching. We had a meeting on Friday with uh, uh, city planning to meet the requirements that they had set before us. And Bill and I uh, went through a meeting that I think we had whiplash by the time we were in the office and out of the office. Uh, you know, Bill brought a big, giant, intimidating suitcase. I'm not sure it had anything to do with anything that we were doing. But when a lawyer comes in with that much gear, you know, it's, it's, the, it's intimidating. Um, but we were in and out of that meeting. It was a very good meeting. They were very positive and supportive and not hostile. And so we, we, are, we have a couple of inspections left. We have some work left to do. But it looks as though we are able to enter into the final planning stages of actually moving in. Uh, we did get permission from, uh, at least verbal, they're supposed to be sending us, and, and obviously with all the hurricane stuff in City Hall, they've been a little delayed, but they're supposed to be sending us a, uh, um, a written commitment, but they've already given us a verbal that, that we're able to use the office space since our offices were destroyed and, and had problems in Kenner, and we've had to relocate furnishings and all that stuff. So being in the building this week only furthered my fuel for what I want us to talk about this morning by way of the Word, and really over the next few weeks. Uh, I've titled the, the message, or this series that we're going to do in the next few weeks before we actually move into the building called Returning from Exile. And uh, it is, it's time to get ready to go home. So I'm excited about that. Yes, indeed. Um, but I, you know, I also needed to, to sort of be honest pastorally with us as I'm seeking to be honest with my own life. Uh, the last three years have, have, have left its tracks on us, as on me. And I'm discovering them more and more as time goes on. Um, and so in, in one sense, it's very clear I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go home. But in a spiritual sense, I really want to ask us, are we ready? Are we ready to return? Because in a way, this church has been on pause in some ways. We've had to learn to do life differently, to learn to do ministry differently. In a way, we really have been in exile. And that, that, I think that's a good word. That's a, a word that we're going to look at today that communicates the experience of our lives as a church but the experience of many of us, just in the patterns of our life, and, and, you know, God's into the patterns of life. You know, life has patterns to it. God has patterns that he creates for us. Whether it involves worship, there are patterns to it. Daily schedules have patterns to it. You know, the sun rises at the same time every day. You can depend on it as a pattern to it. There are seasons that are determined by God that are patterns to them. So there's some patterns that are good, and when patterns get interrupted... They bring something into our life that can be very profitable, but that's also a little bit of a challenge to us. And so the patterns of our life in the last few years have been interrupted. They've just been very different. And I want us to focus in, and this is kind of a, uh, uh, I guess, a learning thing I want us to do from the scriptures here. I want us to really learn from an aspect of the word of God 
and seek to apply it to us. I mean, that's nothing new, but, but for us to look into a particular section of the Bible, into what would be called the exile section of Scripture. And there are some rich lessons for us to learn from their experience. But let me at least Google Earth you into that location here. Um, turn to the table of contents in your Bible. Those of you who have been saved for a while, you're wondering where that is. Sometimes my kids will tell them to turn to a certain place and you know, they open up to the table of contents. You know, it's like what you're supposed to do. I mean, you're trying to find something, you look in the table of contents. But it makes you realize you've probably never been to this page in your Bible, have you? <laughs> it's like we never go there. But let me help us just to... I want to give us a little bit of a Bible layout lesson this morning. Because I, I, if you're like me, the first several years of my life was spent in the Lord, anyway, was spent with a scattering of Bible stories and characters and geography that absolutely had no reference points to them. I mean, I, I couldn't have told you whether Abraham died and the next day Daniel came along. You know, I just, I just knew that there were all these stories and they were there, and, but I, couldn't, I didn't know who was around who and when things happened. Well, let me, let me walk us just for a second through something that I hope that will benefit us. If you look in your table of contents, the way the Bible is laid out, it's, it's the Old Testament in particular I just want to talk about today. You're going to have historical books followed by, this is kind of like an Oreo cookie. Historical books, on the other end, prophetic books, and right in the middle you have uh, songs and poems and, and that literature that's in the middle. So the historical books start in Genesis. We include the law. When the Bible talks about the law and the prophets, it's including all that. But the historical books start in Genesis and run all the way to Esther and pretty much run in chronology when they do that. Now, there's some overlap. Some of the books cover the same time span. So if you keep reading through the Bible, you may find yourself going back and forth, feeling like you are to the same events. But you're, just, you're following chronology, but some of it overlaps. Then you get to the... The poetry and the wisdom books that start from Job and, and go all the way through the Song of Solomon. Uh, and then you get to the prophets. The prophets are broken up into two subdivisions. You have the major prophets, beginning with Isaiah, running all the way through Daniel. Then you have the minor prophets. Now, those terms really are very misleading terms. These, these are not the important prophets and the unimportant prophets. These are just major in size and minor in size. So you have s- smaller uh, size of book in the minor prophets, larger books. And this is just the way they've gathered the books together. It can be very confusing because we come to a book and we want to read it chronologically. So we start reading in Genesis and we get to Isaiah and we think we're way down into the storyline. And we keep going after that. And we think we're way down in the storyline, getting to the minor prophets. Man, we're really getting to the end of this story. Well, that's not how it is. Uh, you actually, the, the gatherings together, you have the, the major prophets and they are in chronological order. So you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lamentations, Daniel. Then you kind of start over again. You get into the minor prophets and you have somewhat of a chronology. So they're not quite sure where some of them fit. So you have a chronology that begins again. Now, within the major things that God has done, and this is just a good thing for you to have as slots for you to put some things in. The major themes, if you will, that you find throughout Scripture. You know, you go back to Genesis, you find the, the patriarchs. And God dealing with the, the fathers, the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph aspects of, of the history of God's people. The Exodus becomes the next major event. And interestingly, again, this is just information for you. 
the thousands of years that are covered in the Old Testament, but every bit of that time doesn't get equal press. The Exodus, for instance, gets a huge amount of press. You get a whole bunch of books that are just right around that little time period where God brings his people out of Egypt, brings them to Mount Sinai, gives them the law, starts and makes clear, this is what it is for you to relate to me as your, as your God, and starts them on their way. Well, there's a whole bunch of material, but there's a little bitty piece of time right there. And then you have them wander in the wilderness for a little little while. And then there's the period, what they call the period of the judges. And it's called that just because there were judges who led the people during that period of time. And then beyond that, you have the period of the kings, because the nation was being led by kings during those times. And then towards the end of this period of the kings is where you get this period of the exile. And the period of the exile is kind of an interesting period because like the exodus a significant amount of the Old Testament is devoted to this event. Just like a significant amount is devoted to the Exodus and the encounter with God and meeting God at Mount Sinai and receiving the law and what all that meant to be God's people. When you get to the exile, there's a lot of press here. There's a lot of information given in this time frame. Much of the prophets, when you're reading the prophets, when you start in Isaiah and Micah and Hosea and those earlier prophets and Amos... When you're reading all those guys, and those are major and minor prophets, many of them are kind of up to one thing. They're trying to keep the consequences of Israel's disobedience from coming upon them. There's warning after warning and prophecy after prophecy, but what they're prophesying primarily is about is the day of exile. Whether it's the Assyrian exile, which took off part of the nation, or what we're going to look at today, uh, the exile of Judah, and those are in the southern part of the kingdom who go off to Babylon. God had sent prophets, and you know, I, I want to ask for a show of hands here, but um, I, will, I will say this, without the prophets, you and I today, as modern readers of scripture and trying to interpret who God is, have a distorted view of God without the prophets. Now, if you only read the prophets, you will also end up with a distorted view of God. But they play their role, and it's a significant role. And as we look today, we're going to look primarily at some of the thoughts from Jeremiah. There was a a devotion of God to his people that kept warning them and warning them and warning them. You're about to go into exile. There are going to be consequences to the decisions that you guys have been making in your life. And so once we get to that period, and then the people do go off into exile, a period that begins about 605 B.C., and for the next 70 years, the people of God are in Babylon. And then they begin to come back. They come back in waves. Remember, Zerubbabel brings back a wave of the people from Babylon. And then Ezra brings back another wave of the people years later. And then Nehemiah brings back another wave of people. Uh, now, it's significant. I'm not sure how much we'll get to all these insights from these lessons. Not everybody comes back. Which, when you realize the purpose of God, the promised land of God, the central features of worship, for people not to come back, well, that says something. But there is this wave of people who do come back. They return from the exile. And, and I think what's important for us to get today as we look at this, to benefit from it in our own lives is returning from exile was basically returning to the promised land. God had made promises, and he had arranged his desires for his people, and they were outside of that now. 
So if you will, they were returning to the promises of God. They were returning to the patterns of God, going back to the place that God had established for them. Now, in some way, I I want us to benefit from this. We're going to need to learn it within the context of what they experienced. But there's, there's elements of these experiences that we need to benefit from. Because in a similar way, we're returning as a people. You know, we're, we're returning to the place where we were, returning to patterns that God had given us. We're returning to days of ministry and vision and direction and impact and what it means to be a local church at a particular time, a particular place, on the assignment from God and being members individually of that same body. We're returning to that place. Now, let me just give us a quick warning about how to apply Scripture in our lives. And this should be true every time you come to the Bible, especially Old Testament narratives. We are not the primary audience for these narratives. When we come to the Old Testament, when you come to any storyline in the Scripture, an interpretive tool that has to be used is you, you first need to understand God wrote this first as a revelation into a particular people's lives, setting, their way of thinking, their way of living, their attitudes, the issues God was dealing with at that moment. Now, when you and I pick it up and read it, and we read first-person kind of proclamations from God, you need to be careful in how you read that. Because I find some people come to the Bible, and it's like they throw off all boundaries and all guidelines and boy, if Jeremiah said this, well, then it's for us. Just like that, it's for us. And even a couple of weeks ago, when we did the message on, on prayer, and Solomon uh, prays before the temple, and, and God tells Solomon, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. I've seen more abuse in that scripture passage. I mean, that that scripture passage has a date and a time on it. It has a people. The land means something in that context. For Christians today to pick that up and say, well, it means America. Uh, I think you're out of bounds. I don't think you can know that that means America. It meant back then, it meant the, the geography that God had given to his people. Because in the Old Testament, God had defined a land for them and had boundaries. And you came into it at one point, and if you step right across that line right there, you're out of it now. So you were in a land, so when God says, I will come and heal the land, he's speaking of something specific. Well, what do we get out of that? Well, we get principles, and we get truths out of it that now we have to be careful to apply in our lives, but not to apply apply like that's God telling the people of southeast Louisiana in 2008, if you'll humble yourself... You have people who tell the world that. Well, first of all, that's not a passage for the world. That's a passage for the people of God. So who was the original audience? It was the people of God. You know, much of what's abused in the Bible is when people pick it up and want to give it to the world. And say, here, you need to believe this as though the world can apply the word of God. to This is, this is a book written to the people of God. Now, you do have some things. You read through Isaiah elements in Jeremiah. You have some judgments brought against the world. That's to the world. God comes along and says what he's going to do to Tyre, what he's going to do to Sidon. I'm going to do this. And he's addressing them. There's some things that are given to Nineveh, but 90% plus of the Bible is written to the people of God. You need to know that. Otherwise you can't apply it correctly. So there's context 
to what's being learned and discovered here. What we want to do is, because our situation doesn't exactly parallel this, I don't believe that our experience in the last three years has, has come after a couple of hundred years of prophetic warnings of waywardness, and God has finally said, enough, I'm going to exile you, enough. I'm shut. You won't shut the doors on this false worship. I'm shutting the doors and you're all out of here. Okay, I don't think that's what happened to us. But yet, I do think there are aspects of being exiled and returning that we need to benefit from. We need to be prepared. We're going back to something. And I do think, I do think because a lot of this will be drawn from the books of prophecy, I do think we need to be prepared for the Lord to bring some conviction into the condition of our souls as we consider returning, as we examine our own waywardness, perhaps, that exile may have created in our hearts. And maybe even I think there would be a place for us to revisit our lives even before Katrina. That's not a bad thing to do. You know, hopefully Matt, the songs Matt led us through today, these are songs of confidence. Right? We, are, we, are, we are the people of God. There's a place of confidence in that. Oh, there's not a place for insecurity as being the people of God. We should not be squeamish and questioning whether we belong to God, whether God is for us. Oh, but we have failed. Oh, your failure should be a squeak. Amidst the noise of rockets blaring against the noise of what the cross has done. Are you aware that you failed? Yes, but the squeak should not be the loudest thing you hear. But we have, we have poorly paid attention to doctrine. I'm not going to say you've been poorly taught. We've poorly paid attention to doctrine. If we hear the squeak of our sin louder than the rocket noise of redemption that's come into our lives. But let me tell you, because I'm, I'm, I have a sense, you know, I had a direction to go in this direction, spent some time with the Lord a couple of nights ago, <clears throat> and began to feel the weight of this a little bit, in a way that I thought, oh, Lord, this, this, this could be a little bit of an uncomfortable series to go through. Um, poor theology. Listen, you come to church and you get real uncomfortable. There's a place for uncomfortable conviction, but if your discomfort turns to condemnation, it may be that you're not benefiting from doctrine in your life. Now, here's what I can't do and what I won't do as a pastor. I won't rescue you from that. I won't, I won't preach um, something that doesn't sound like Jeremiah. Let's not sound like Jeremiah because, you know, we all, we all get our feelings hurt. We might all feel a little discomfort because, you know, I don't like the way that's making me feel. Well, that's the Bible. It's living and it's active and it's trying to speak into my life in a way that's going to have an impact on me. But my sin better be a squeak against the roar of God's redemption so that I can receive correction without going, oh, I feel so condemned. No, you're just being corrected. Just the Holy Spirit coming and saying, change that. I can get your attention without you sort of, I mean, how many, you grew up this way, you had a brother or sister this way, you have children this way, you know, you, you go to correct the situation and, and you've just opened Pandora's box. I got 10 things to deal with because there's so much baggage, you know, coming with that person. It's like, well, I thought you said this and you made me feel like this. And it's like, I was just trying to tell you to do it different for goodness sake. 
Well, can God come to our lives and say, listen, I want, I want you to return. It's a day of return. It's a day of return to something that was to be glorious in the first place. It's the ministry of the church for the glory of God. I want you to return to that. I want you to have fresh vision for it. And I want to deal with the little barnacles that have grown on your life in the last few years. And I might even want to deal with some things that were there before any of this even happened. Because I want you to return to a place of great glory. Now, I hope we're all signed on for that. I think there's some great lessons to help us here as we look through this, this chapter on exile. Let's start with what is exile. I'm going to make five quick insights. Hopefully, they'll be quick. And uh, then we'll look at some application thoughts for our lives. And, and I, don't want, I don't want to limit this only to our returning to the neighborhood of Lakeview in the form of God giving us a place of ministry once again. Um, although I want us to glean much from that. I think exile and returning from exile can find its way into many categories of our lives. And we'll look at some of those today that will help us to think through some of this. But what is exile? Let's just answer that question today. <clears throat> the word exile is from the Latin word exilium. It means banishment, a banished person. It comes from two words, ex al, ex meaning away and al meaning to wander. So when you are in exile, you are, you are wandering, but you are away from something. Somebody today living in exile from the United States or from a foreign country, they are outside of their home domain. They're outside of the land that kind of defines them. Somebody who comes to the United States, a protective exile from a country, <clears throat> they're here, but they're having to live apart from the place that was theirs. So the first thing I want to draw to our attention, just the very nature of that word. Exile is people living outside of their purpose. That's what you found in Israel. That's what you found if you visited Babylon. You would have found a people living outside of their purpose. See, God had a plan. God had a purpose. And, and guess what? You go back in the Bible, Babylon wasn't it. When God meets with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he is not describing Babylon to him. Abraham, the plan I have for you, and he gives the boundaries of the land. It's a land of promise. God had a pattern for them to live in. He had relationships for them to live in. He had a government for them to live in. He had worship patterns for them to live in that were centered on the temple and the presence of God being amongst his people and them dealing with sin in a certain way. You realize in Babylon, none of that was happening. They were away from their purpose. You see in your outline there, Exodus chapter 3, kind of informs us, many, many verses would inform us first of God's plan, Exodus 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Many statements in the Old Testament highlight God had a purpose to take his people and to give them a land. And he said, you know, this is a land right now that's inhabited by the Canaanites and the Perizzites and Jebusites, etc. But that's your land. And it's a good land. It's a land of promise. It's a land where I'm going to fulfill my purposes in your life. It's a land where you're going to worship me and you're going to walk together in relationships in a certain way. Now, Babylon is not what God is describing. Babylon is an interruption 
to that plan. Babylon is God, what God told Isaiah, when, when Isaiah begins to plead the cause of God, right? You have 605, get some time frame here. 605 BC, they're going to go off into Babylon. Somewhere 750, good 150 years earlier, Isaiah is prophesying. And he is trying to correct what has become vain and empty worship. All around the nation of Israel, they're sort of living in God's plan. But they're going through the motions and they've begun to love the idols of the land. They've begun to join their lives to the idols of the land. But they have not abandoned the worship of God. Well, in essence, they have because you cannot worship two gods. And their lives, though, they've figured out a way. And listen, this is where we are not far from here. Being Americans... Being people with many options and many things that we love to pursue, there are many competing agendas in our hearts. These guys had figured out how to keep God on the, on the, on the leash, how to keep him in their life, but to have all the other stuff they wanted to, and, the, and, and actually begin to corrupt worship, and then bring vain worship, because they can manage to show up for a service, if you will, go through the motions of whether it was singing, bringing an offering, offer, you know, slay the animal, put their hands on it, do all the motions, walk away from that meeting without their heart at all being changed or open or broken or repentant or, or receiving from God. God finally says, you, you know, I, I've had enough of this. I despise, in Isaiah chapter 1, he says, I despise your offerings. Remember, God was the one who told him to bring the offerings. How did he get so hostile toward them? Because they had become vain and empty. He knew, you don't mean this. Your heart's not true. You don't, you don't love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're going through some motions. And God finally just says, oh, that someone would just shut the doors. And you remember, God had said, build a tabernacle so my presence could dwell amongst my people. Now he's saying, oh, I wish you'd just close the doors and go away. Well, they wouldn't close the doors and they wouldn't go away and they wouldn't repent and they wouldn't get right. So God closed the doors. God said, I've had enough. He closed the doors and you guys are out of here. For 70 years, you are out of here. And that was an interruption to the plan. So exile is the removal. Look, look in Jeremiah with me. I'm going to take you through a little bit of Jeremiah. <clears throat> and one of the things I was excited for us to spend some time in this neighborhood of the Bible is because I... I have the general impression that most folks don't spend much time in the minor prophets and in this section of scripture. It may be difficult for us to understand, perhaps, or that we don't get the time frames, or for whatever reason, it just doesn't get as much press. We just like to read the Gospels or read something in a, an epistle that, that seems to be dealing with how to deal with your wife or your children. Uh, but these are very important passages here. Jeremiah chapter 3 exposes us to God's character, his love. This is God's plea. We just looked at God's plan in Exodus. Look at this. This is God's plea. Verse 12. The Lord said to me, this is Jeremiah. The Lord said to me, go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree 
and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Listen, this is, <clears throat> this is God declaring to people that your hearts have been gone for quite a while. Your heart needs to return. Before you return physically, you need to return in your heart. Look in verse 19. I said, <clears throat> how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land. There's the purpose of God. A heritage, most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons. Because they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God. Now here is the plea of God. This is not the only plea. It is one of many pleas from God. It's very important that you catch that because in the day that God sends them into exile, it gets ugly. Right? When life gets ugly and we're ill-informed, we didn't read Jeremiah chapter 3. Right? We only read Lamentations as Jeremiah walks through the city of Jerusalem and sees this incredible destruction that's been brought by this exile. But if we haven't read Jeremiah 3, then, then our tendency is to accuse God. Like God didn't do the right thing here. God didn't do enough. Now listen, God had been calling to Israel for years Jeremiah ministers to the nation of Israel for about 40 years. 23 of those years is before the exile. For years, this man has been sent by God, calling out to them, return, return to the Lord, return to the Lord. They will not return. They will not return. And so this is, this is again, being informed by the doctrine of depravity. They will not return, nor are they ever planning on returning. See, returning is in the hands of God. Sometimes we're always begging God, God, rescue me from all calamity and difficulty and problems in my life. Make my life easy. You, you realize if God answered all those prayers, there would be sin elements in our lives. The fact that we ever were even turned to God to be saved would be always in question. We would never turn. Returning is in the hands of God. It is the exile of God that causes the return of his people. So it comes to the plate where God says, okay. He has pleaded with them. They will not. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah 25, verse 1. Let's read a little piece of this. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So we're 605 B.C. now. Which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you. But you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets. Jeremiah is in a long line here of voices that have been reasoning with the people of God. Remember Isaiah said, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. 
saying, turn now, verse 5, turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might be that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction. Now, this is the words of God. Right? Can, I, can I mess with everybody's mamby-pamby view of God? And this, this, is where, this is where modern media, modern theology suffers because it doesn't want to read Jeremiah. God did say this. Now, and don't become, what I can say, don't become evolutionary in your thinking. When it comes to your theology, you know how evolutionists think? Evolutionists just introduce the idea that, well, you know what? We don't really know how exactly evolution took place. We just believe that it did. And, you know, time plus chance, and really, couldn't anything happen? If you just had enough time and you had enough possibilities, couldn't anything be possible? Couldn't, couldn't an amoeba have turned into uh, a monkey that turned into a man? I mean, couldn't that have happened? Come on, I mean, how much time will we need? I don't know. Let's, let's make it... A billion years. I mean, over a billion years. I mean, you can't even conceptualize of a billion years, right? So over a billion years, anything could happen over a billion years. Come on, go with me, right? That's how an evolutionist thinks. But somehow, in our theology, we become evolutionists. It's like, well, you know, that's not how God is. God's, God's not punitive. God doesn't bring punishment. That's, that's not the God that I know. Well, let me, let me ask you this. What if these words had been spoken by God yesterday? Would you still feel that way? If we were reading these words, and God says he's bringing Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, don't get the wrong impression from my servant. He's simply serving the purposes of God. He is not one who is loving God and enamored with God. But he's going to do exactly what God has him do which is an amazing thing as well. I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. What if God had said that yesterday? How would you define God? Would you stand today? Say, wow, well, that's, that's not the God I love. That's not the God I know. Well, if that would be the case, then, then your God's not God. I and mean, that's all I can tell you. Because just because time has passed since this was said doesn't mean God is different. The only thing different is some time has passed. This is the same God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what is provoking God right here still provokes God. And who God is here, he is still today. Verse 10, moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. 
the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin, a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. (laughs) I'm not going to go off on this verse, but I just want you to hold on to this for a second. Because this is where sometimes we have really cheap theology that doesn't, doesn't have any difficulty to it. Don't you love to just have theology that you can explain it all? How is it that Nebuchadnezzar can be the servant in the hand of God to do exactly what God says? And then God turns around and says, and I'm going to punish that sucker when he's done. (laughs) And that nation, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to come make your land a wasteland for 70 years. And then when he's done, I'm going to make his land a wasteland after that. That's what God says. So herein is the exile. Jeremiah experiences this. Jeremiah is one of the prophets who doesn't get exiled to Babylon. He stays in in Jerusalem. He writes the book of Lamentations in about 587 B.C., some years after the first deportation of the Jews from uh, the land of promise into Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar comes back. There's a little bit of a resistance issue. Some kings decide to do a power play, and Nebuchadnezzar gets provoked, and he decides to destroy Jerusalem now. He's going to burn it to the ground. And... Jeremiah walks in the city. In Lamentations, is Jeremiah walking amongst the land of promise, the place of God's dwelling, where the people of God were to come with festivals and praises and worship of God. And he's walking amongst something that looks like a World War II bombed-out city. And this is what he says. Verse 1, he says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile. Because of affliction and hard servitude, she dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. That's what Jeremiah sees. As he walks through the city. Now, let me, let me just connect this a little bit to our experience. Um, certainly, you have been exposed to the question. Was Katrina the judgment of God on the city of New Orleans? Right? And I know that there, were some, there will be some who want to run towards that. There's some who love Jeremiah. They don't even know the rest of the Bible exists. They love Jeremiah. They love judgment. I got an email from somebody who just sends out tons of emails. I don't know how I got on this person's list. But as soon as Gustav got into the realm of hitting New Orleans, he sent out this email saying that Gustav, the, the translation for Gustav, you know, Katrina meant cleansing. The translation for Gustav meant the rod of God. I thought, I'm a little curious about that. So I went online and I studied... Gustav etymology to find out where does that name come from, 
And, and it, I couldn't find anybody that said it meant the rod of God. I mean, maybe there's some unique translation in southern Brazil where it means the rod of God. But it doesn't mean the rod of the God to the rest of the universe. But, you know, it was, it was you know, it kind of plays into that. Ooh, God is getting New Orleans. Um, you know, but certainly you've had to wrestle through that. Was Katrina judgment from God on this city? Now, I, I, I want to take issue with people who say absolutely not. Not because I believe it was, but because I question why you conclude absolutely not. Some who conclude absolutely not, it is because they do not believe God is ever punitive. They don't believe God would ever do anything like that. God would never punish. God would never bring that form of judgment. God would not do that. That was not judgment from God. Theologically, you've got no legs to stand on. I mean, you do realize Katrina was the warm-up band for the flood. Right? Send rain upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I'm going to drown everybody on the planet except for Noah. You know, God did that. That was God who did that. Sodom and Gomorrah, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah has come up before me, and the evil of their lives have come before me, and God has come to put an end to it. And he rains down judgment upon a city. When Jerusalem, who is the the crown jewel of God's affections and care, is sitting in Zion, the city of God, and God says, I'm going to bring lamentation onto my people and to this city. For us to stand today and say, God doesn't do that. God God doesn't do that kind of thing. what, What do you base that on? You do realize this whole endeavor of human existence ends in judgment beginning the experience of hell which the way it's described I would have to believe hell is the eternal pouring out of the infinite wrath of God that can never be quenched and stopped see this is why if you're not in Christ you're in serious trouble see God is an infinite being What kind of wrath does God have? Anger against sin does God contain? And where would you pour that? What has he got, 10 gallons of it? 100 gallons? How much wrath is in God against sin? How opposing of sin could God be? How offended could God be? And so God describes his wrath as a cup of his wrath. How big is that cup? A few ounces? See, if you can make it small enough, then somehow you and I could figure out a way to drink it. But what if you make the infinite God's wrath so big that it would take eternity, never ending, for it to be poured out? It will never stop. And the only solution beside that would be able to take the wrath that was infinite and pour it upon another one who is infinite as well. And he could swallow it up then. See, if you are not in Christ, you have no alternative to receiving the wrath of God. And this Bible ends in judgment. And along the way, God does bring judgment. Now, the reason why I won't stand before you today and say Katrina was the judgment of God on this city is simply because I don't have a word from God that tells me that. Not because I believe it's not possible or that God would never do such a thing, but because when you get to this day, when you're walking through your lamentations and Jeremiah is walking through Jerusalem, 
Isaiah has been prophesying this. Jeremiah has been prophesying it. The inspired word of God has clearly said, this is the judgment of God. So when you walk through Jerusalem, you don't have to scratch your head and wonder. You know, this is the judgment of God. Now, when you walk through New Orleans, and man, I remember reading these verses in Lamentations. After we had come back to New Orleans, uh, just a few days after the hurricane, and it was spooky. It was weird to be here. You drove me. I grew up here. So I'm driving down streets that I've grown up in, and it looks just like this description. There's no power anywhere. There's trees down everywhere, all the, the hurricane destruction. But the weirdness of it's, it's noon, and you're driving down Veterans Highway, and you can't find a soul. There's no one anywhere. There's no cars. There's no traffic. There's not a human being anywhere. There's no birds I mean, it's just bizarre. And I remember reading these verses and feeling I had a sense of what Jeremiah must have felt like when he walked in that setting. Listen, there is a place where God brings exile, judgment upon people. We, we should not. We should not have a God who never does that because he does it in Scripture and he is the same. Now, the New Testament and the work of Christ has made all that different for those who are in Christ. Do not read the Bible like it's to everyone. Not everybody receives the benefit that Christ has brought. So if God were to choose to judge something today, it's not as though there would be a prohibition upon him choosing to do it through whatever means he does. So first, exile is people living outside of their purpose. That's what it was for the people of God. They were outside of the purpose of God. Secondly... Exile is part of the effects of life in a fallen world. This living outside of purposes is going to be the experience of man because that's the condition this world is in. The fall has brought sin and sin has dislodged elements of the purpose of God in our lives in such a way that we are going to experience life outside of it in the realms of how we live. The fall of man begins with exile. If you go back to the garden... God warned Adam in the garden, the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. What did he mean by die? He meant you and I are going to be cut off from each other. You're going to be separated from me. My, my life's presence in you is through the day you eat of that. So immediately when man sins, man goes into exile from the presence of God. And he begins to wander in his confusion through the garden. And then man is banished. God banishes man from the garden of Eden. Short time after that, we find Cain. Sin is living in his heart, and he kills Abel. And the Bible says after that, that that Cain wandered, wandered upon the earth as a fugitive. See, sin brings with it a sense of exile. It brings this removal from what could have been, and perhaps we could also say what should have been. Uh, Secondly, the, the exile of the Israelites included components of sin that are now present amongst man. See, sin has brought with us this dislodging influence, but it's, it's in man. The exile contained in it real human choices and real human consequences. The first human choices were just disobedience. Man disregarded what God said and would not live under God's rule. And that disobedience brought God bringing these circumstances. But listen, it wasn't difficult for God to find a volunteer like Nebuchadnezzar. See, it's not as though God had to come to Nebuchadnezzar and get him to do what he didn't want to do. 
Nebuchadnezzar wanted to dominate the world. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to bring people under submission to himself. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to conquer. God simply just took the sin that was in him and, and let him go with it. That's how Nebuchadnezzar becomes. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is the vassal of God. But it's not as though he's an unwilling participant. Nebuchadnezzar wants to sin. He wants to conquer. Now, what's, And this is a wonderful thing. Please hold on to these are little nuggets of truth that should mess with us on a daily basis. Nebuchadnezzar wants to do that which will not glorify God in his life. That's what's in him. He's a, he's a rebel and, a, and an arrogant, sinful human being, more so than any of your husbands, ladies. He is, he is out there. But God accomplishes exactly his will through that guy. Doesn't that blow your mind? How do you give hope for your marriage? <laughs> I mean, come on, doesn't it? Because I know you're sitting here thinking, well, I ain't my husband. Listen, your husband ain't this guy. Trust me. And yet he does exactly what God has him do. Full-blown rebellion doing exactly what God has him do. Now, I don't know how to figure that out. I'm just telling you. I'm just reporting the facts to you here. What's it? One more interesting thing. Sin has come into this equation. This is going to be true in the city of New Orleans, if God were judging this city. It is true in this time. In the midst of this exile, the righteous experience the exile right alongside the unrighteous. Jeremiah is a faithful prophet. Now, do you think he was like having dominoes delivered while he was walking through Jerusalem? <laughs> Behold, power is out. You know, everything's destroyed and beats a man, you know, and he drives off. Jeremiah suffered right along with everyone else. Daniel, that righteous man, was one of the first to go in 605. Daniel is gone first from the promised land to go live in Babylon, that place of the unclean Babylonians. And he has to go make a life over there. Listen, when God moves upon the earth to do his thing, sometimes that movement is going to bring suffering and the righteous are going to walk in that suffering as well. Right? Joseph, you go down the line. Righteous people suffering right alongside those who are under the exile of God. Now, listen, I mean, you, you take... Katrina, if Katrina was some form of judgmental work of God, um, I look in the Bible and I don't, have to, I don't have to stumble. You know, I heard people say things like, well, if that was God, he sure needs to improve his aim. The French Quarter is fine. Look at all the churches that got drowned. Um, I don't theologically have to, to suffer through the thought that I may have to endure the effects of God's judgment upon this world while I walk here as a minister of the grace of God. I may not be exempt from it. I'm going to receive grace in the midst of it. But I'm not exempt from walking through the ruins of Jerusalem uh, like Jeremiah did. What is exile? Three, exile. Exile is the common dominating theme of humanity. That's what exile is. You read the Bible. Everybody who is in Adam is exiled from God. 
is away from the life of God. From the moment Adam sinned in the garden, this, this is the dominant theme. This is, this is what separates, I think most distinctly separates false churches from true churches is whether or not there is a significant enough role for the doctrine of redemption in, in the teaching of the church. Whether or not churches gather together and what's served up is just this sweet, ooey-gooey pleasantness, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. And let's figure out how we can use some tools from God to make our life even better together, okay? Now, today's lesson is about blah, 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 blah. Listen, the Bible is primarily about one thing. It's about redemption. From the get-go in the beginning, man got exiled from God. The rest of this book is about how to get back home. How to return. Listen, I know the world doesn't get this. Because this this is what makes evangelism so difficult. Because it moves people to the place of, you're wrong. And you need to get right with God. That's the most difficult thing you'll ever say to another person, isn't it? See, if we could just turn evangelism into um, just finding agreement, just, you know, somebody who likes sports and you just get to like sports with them and God will come alongside you and make you a great athlete. If I can turn the gospel into that, I don't have any butterflies in my stomach to do evangelism, do I? It's like, oh, well, you're into cars? Well, let me tell you. God will bless you with more cars you could ever have. You can drive them fast. You could be a NASCAR racer. You want to be a NASCAR? Let's pray together. Hallelujah. God, make Joe a NASCAR racer. Make him win. You know, if that's evangelism, nobody's intimidated to do it, is it? See, what makes evangelism weird and difficult is that it starts to explain redemption. Redemption begins with you have a problem. You are at odds with God, just like I was at odds with God. What do you mean I'm at odds with God? And instantly, the mood of the room has changed and the party is over. <laughs> but this is, this, listen, this is so important. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about this ambassadorship that we, are all, we have all received. As though Christ were imploring through us, be reconciled to God. That's the message of the church. Now, I know it's one thing when the world doesn't get it because the world is blinded in sin. But... I'm concerned that the church doesn't get it. I'm concerned for us returning that we sufficiently get this. Because there are too many Christians, and we are not exempt, that are AWOL ambassadors. We have received an ambassadorship. You are on foreign soil. You are here representing a king. You have a message from that king on foreign soil. The primary goal of being in foreign soil as an ambassador is not to accumulate and make yourself at home. As tempting as that is for me. We're here as ambassadors to proclaim God's message to this world. Be reconciled to God. Now, there are way too many Christians who are absent without leave. That is not the primary issue in their life. That's not what they're building around. That's not what causes them to order and structure their life. That's a problem. See, listen, and and we'll get into this next couple of elements of this exile in the next couple of weeks. That's a problem that needs to be repented of. See, to return, for us to return, we've got to come back with that in place in every one of our hearts. We are here as Lakeview Christian Center 
year 2008 and on, on a mission from God as ambassadors seeking to reconcile the world to God because that is the common need for man. And I know many folks assume, you know, isn't there just this mystery that's out there? It's like it's in the water. People just assume they're right with God. I mean, that's, where you, that's why you look like you've got two heads when you try to introduce the concept that you're not. It's like, well, everybody just assumes that somehow, okay, well, how did I get right with God? How did that happen? It's news to people. You're, you're in exile. <laughs> I'm in exile. I've been going to church my whole life, man. Yeah, I mean, my mom is this and my dad was that and we did this in the church. And uh, Yeah, but, but you're, you're apart from God. You're outside of God. Listen, I didn't know that significant portion of my life i had no idea that was the case i mean i was the guy who would commit crimes and then pray that i wouldn't get caught (laughs) and that was how my theology worked you know so i mean if i was in dire straits i mean that was the god was he was he was like he just kind of jerked his chain the merciful little mamby pamby god came running and hopefully he'd help you out and maybe you knew to beg me right he's god you gotta beg do something but get god to come fix this situation but it kind of blew my mind when i got informed by the prophets prophets are helpful you read isaiah 59 it's kind of like hey why isn't god doing something here this is the tone of isaiah 59 why isn't god showing up and doing something right now isaiah says well it's not as though god's arm is too short that it cannot save that's not the problem it's not as though god can't do anything The problem is this, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and he doesn't hear you. What? I thought he heard everybody. I thought everybody was a child of God and I thought somehow we're all just okay with God. So if I want to call upon God, he's going to listen to me and he's going to come running and he's going to come help me. No. No. You and I would be in the role of the people for the hundreds of years that God had been crying out to them, return Return from your waywardness. Put down your sin. Honor me as God. And we would not. Oh, but in the day of our trouble, we want God to return. Well, you know, that's not how it works. We are in exile from God. We need to be aware of that. Fourth, exile is under the management of a sovereign God. This is very important because there are going to be aspects of your life today that you're going to realize. I'm kind of in exile in a particular aspects of my life. Please realize exile is being managed by a sovereign God. When you visit Genesis chapter 3, when the fall of humanity takes place and there are players on the ground zero right there. There's man, there's the devil, and there's God. And you're tempted to walk away and wonder who... Who is in charge of this thing? Well, at the end of the day, when God brings the response, he clearly says, the seed of the woman is going to be bruised in his heel by you, devil, but he's going to crush your head. From the moment sin enters the scene, God has already put boundaries around it. So this, is, this is what's going to happen now. See, the devil's not in charge. He's not managing your exile. You're not managing your exile. God is managing the exile. Remember Daniel chapter 9? Daniel's reading. He's reading Jeremiah. He's reading Jeremiah 25 probably. And he comes to realize as he's praying and seeking God and he reads in Jeremiah 
that it's, it's going to be 70 years. The length of our captivity would be 70 years. See, God managed the exile before it ever happened. See, Nebuchadnezzar was not in charge. It's not as though, oh, I sure hope that Nebuchadnezzar is going to let us go soon. No, God had put the boundaries up. God had told Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar's coming. He's my vassal. He's going to do exactly what I told him to do. And for 70 years, you're going to be away. Now, what you want to just see God blowing your mind here? Look at I'll put these verses in your outline. Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, now Nebuchadnezzar's gone. Nebuchadnezzar's been conquered. The king of Persia now, no longer Babylonian. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Boy, if you've got some theological issues here with that, what does it mean for God to stir up the heart of an unbeliever to where he turns around and does exactly what God says? Please don't ever believe that God can't do certain things. Well, you know how that free will thing is. God just can't violate our free will. Do you think Cyrus ran God down and volunteered for any of this? He's a heathen king. He has no interest in God. Why did he do exactly what God told him to do? Don't for a second believe that God can't mess with your will. Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. This is just so funny. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. I'm sure that was a goal he had since childhood. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. Go ahead. All you people, get out of here. Go back home. Seventy years is up. See, you ever wonder how God will do some of these things? See, I could turn to you, I could be across the table having a counseling meeting with you, and I could say, listen, you just need to trust God. And you're saying, I don't, I appreciate you saying that, Keith, trust God, but I don't see how God can fix this. Okay, if you're standing and God is saying, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come burn the place down and take everybody away, and you're going to be held captive by him and subjected to his leadership. In that moment, are you thinking... Well, let me scratch my head for a second. I know what God will do. God will take a heathen king years from now and will cause him to do exactly. And not only will he send us back home with good cheer and appreciation, he'll also finance our trip and send us gold and, and stuff back for the temple and stuff for our building materials. And then he'll send a letter to the people who live in the land and say, you better help them out too. Could you have ever imagined that's what, how God would do this? So you, you need to remember God is managing your exile. God's managing it. So it's an amazing thing. I have to read this verse. I know it'll take me add a moment to our time. But Isaiah says this about Cyrus. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 44, remember, this is 200 years earlier. 200 years before Cyrus comes on the scene or anybody even knows who he is. Isaiah chapter 44. This is one of the reasons why God establishes his credentials through the prophets. When you read this section of Isaiah, this is why God over and over again says, I am God and there is no other. Because he can tell you everything that's going to be happening. Because he's in control of everything. Verse 28, Isaiah 44. God speaks and he says, who says of Cyrus? He's talking about himself. He says, uh, verse 24, it starts this section. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the room. Okay, this is who I am. Look in verse 28. 
this Redeemer, who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now at this point, ain't nothing been destroyed. This is long before the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 1 of chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, (laughs) to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places and that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not even know me. I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. How does God pull stuff off when there's no options? He creates options. Listen, it's you and I who run out of options. Can you understand? God never runs out of options. He's not, you know, in heaven going, oh, man, that was our last chance. (laughs) What are we going to do now? I don't know. God created an option. Oh, okay. God creates options. You and I don't have the ability to do that. That's why we get anxious. But God is managing our lives. Last point. What is exile? Exile is an opportunity for the glory of God. Exile is an opportunity for the glory of God. That little passage there, I won't read it to us. Jeremiah is told by God to go learn a lesson. Jeremiah, go to the potter's house. And I'm going to reveal myself to you there. So Jeremiah goes to the potter's house. Remember, the potter was a guy who made, he made pots. He made vessels, earthenware vessels. You've ever seen pottery in the way it's done. You've got the wheels spinning around. And they just throw a lump of this kind of soft, wet clay. And the spinning, he begins to shape it. He begins to get it to be a little taller, a little taller. And he puts his hand down inside of it while it spins. And he hollows it out. And he makes it in a certain shape. Well, God says, I want you to sit down and watch this, Jeremiah. I want you to learn a lesson about me from this. And he watches the potter. The potter makes this clay, and all of a sudden the thing begins to tilt, and it's not forming correctly. And so the potter stops the, the, the wheel, and he takes the clay. Things pot now. It's deformed. It's not what he wanted. Picks it up, and he throws it back down on the thing, and he smashes it all back into a mound. And he starts again, and he makes what he wanted. And God tells Jeremiah, Jeremiah, that's how I'm dealing with you. That's how I'm dealing with your situation. See, what the exile was for the people of God, it was God taking a deformed people and removing them, throwing them down back on the, on the potter's wheel, smashing down what looked like a vessel, maybe even looked like a decent vessel to some people. But God smashes it back down and he starts again and he reforms it. And listen, That brings a different slant on how we feel about being exiled. See, exile in the hands of a redemptive God is going to accomplish something glorious. When you look at the end of this whole event, God is going to pronounce his triumph over the nations. You have this nation of Babylon who took control of the whole world. 
followed by the Persians who beat them out and took control of the whole world after them. And God triumphs over both of them and declares his purpose and restores his purpose in his elect. It continues. See, this, was, this was a reformative move on God's part. It looked terrible as Jeremiah walked through Jerusalem. Even back in the garden, when man goes into exile because of his sin and gets away from God and falls from God's purpose and plan, it is God managing that exile that brings the glory of the revelation of the cross. Listen, we see the redemptive purpose of God because of the fall. You've not seen the redemptive purpose of God apart from the fall. So there, there is elements where God is showing something glorious about himself. The day that we live in, this day where the spirit of God moved away from the people of God and they became exiled from the presence of God, shows the glory of the triumph of the cross and then the return of the spirit of God and the presence of God dwelling here once again. See, in the end, God accomplishes everything he had intended to accomplish. Now, let me just draw us to a close here. Matt, you can, you can come. We as a church, I think, have experienced an exile. Katrina has been an exilic event for our lives personally. There has been some, some wear and tear in the last three years. I'm, I'm, I'm noticing, and if I was an engineer inspecting my own life, I'd be finding some stress fractures lately. That I, didn't, I kind of didn't know if some of them were there. You know, but after three years, I'm, I'm kind of starting to see them a little bit differently. This, this period of distraction, this period of change of responsibilities. I mean, some of you guys went from being employees to business owners and your whole world has been greatly impacted. It's been very difficult. There were, there were financial situations where husbands and wives, both of them had to go to work to be able to handle the, the financial changes that had taken place. Then half of us became professional builders, building something. And I'm convinced if you're going to rebuild your house, remodel your house, it, it's at minimum part-time job, at minimum. Potentially another job. And by the time you do planning and preparing and go buy and go pick out and change and face change orders and deal with subcontractors and people who didn't do things right and... By the time you do all that and it costs more and you've got to figure out financially how I'm going to do this now. Right? This, has been, this has been a challenging little season, hasn't it? Some of you guys have relocated. So good to see Sue Ellen here. And some people have relocated and come back. Right? Trying to come back. Going through the stress of trying to come back. Having to have jobs. People have lost jobs. Go take a different job job doesn't pay as well this is this has been wearying it's been full of distractions and part of that list in there was describing me i mean i've known what it is to kind of just be wearied by okay man enough now, let me just warn you i say this to myself first so you can get in line behind me at some point for me weariness and i don't i don't say weariness is not a genuine experience but at some point weariness can give opportunity for waywardness because weariness is a legitimate experience that gives us permission and I can begin to make excuses and I, I did be categories in my life right you know I just just taught I've had so much going on today and so in that area of my life I would just begin to go into exile in that area just begin to wander 
I'm not living in that area in the purpose of God the way I should be. And I have a legitimate excuse because I'm wearied. I'm tired. I mean, there's so much going on, you understand. Well, while that may be true, I also know the sinfulness in me wants to consume that as an opportunity. Right? Just don't, don't think that, it's just, that we're managing things honestly all the time. In my own heart, I have to suspect, really, Keith, are you really that weary that you can't do that? Or you can't walk that way or invest yourself that way in that thing? Really? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Be careful that weariness for you in whatever categories you found it has not given opportunity for waywardness. Waywardness is what exile is. Is being wayward, is being away from the purposes of God. And I would be concerned, I put in your outline just a number of categories. You know, our relationships can go into exile. We as a church have been in a form of exile. We're about to return. This may not have anything to do with Katrina. You can be living your life. Your relationships can be in a form of exile. You, you can be in your relationships living outside of the land that God had wanted you to live in. This is the way you do that. This is the promise that I've made to you. This is what I've called you to experience. Here's the boundaries. Live this way. Worship this way. Relate this way. And you can find yourself in your marriage. You can find yourself living outside of what God had intended. You're living in Babylon. God intended you to live in the promised land of your marriage. Years of hurt. Years of disappointment. How about this one? How about years of mediocrity? How many of you guys feel like you have a mediocre... I won't won't say a mediocre... and, And don't look at your spouses when you think this... Not so much a mediocre marriage, but a mediocre spouse. This this would be the fallout of uh, living in a church that's fairly, I think, well taught. At least the resources that we give to you are good. I'm sure the messages are all that great, but the resources are good. And you read these great books on marriage. And the husbands walk on water. And they can raise the dead. I mean, they're incredible. And the wives, wow. And, the, and people are described that way, and then the writer gives an example from their life. And, okay, you don't live with those folks, okay? I'm going to make that really clear. You don't live with them. And they have just encapsulated a few points from their lives into a book form. And so next thing you know, we can start feeling like, oh, man, that's how a wife's supposed to be? Boy, did I get the raw end of the deal. You know, I, I heard Keith the other day talk about husbands and men. You don't do that. You don't do that. Did you hear that? You know, years of mediocrity, right? And next thing you know, you just your heart just begins to be different towards your marriage, and you kind of let, you let that thing go into exile, and you're living outside of what it's supposed to be. Parenting, listen, parenting is what a challenging endeavor. There can be you can be here today, and your parenting relationship or your relationship with your parents can be in exile. It's not what it's supposed to be right now. Conflict has occurred, hurt feelings on both ends, right? Listen, I'd love to stand up here as a parent and say, hey, 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 all you parents, I know you're going to get your feelings hurt. Just suck it up, all right? You're supposed to be the big boys here. You're raising the kids. Don't be acting like a child when you get your feelings hurt. Now, listen, I do feel that way, okay? (laughs) You should feel that way. But it doesn't remove the reality that your kids can hurt your feelings, can't they? And there can be real pain in your heart as a result. And parents can hurt kids' feelings. Neglect, demandingness, intolerance, busyness. 
And so next thing you know, on one end of the deal here, either one has hurt feelings and then bitterness begins to set in and you just leave that relationship alone. Just tolerate each other. Live in the same space, eat out of the same refrigerator, but just don't get too close to each other. That's a relationship in exile. And see, there's aspects of our life, not just about returning to where we're going back to as a church, but there's aspects of our lives that can be in exile. You can be here today, your walk can be in exile. Your walk with God. And Jeremiah is the one who gives us the term backslidden. I'm not in the place where God wants me to be. Listen, part of returning, part of returning is recognizing that you're not home. I mean, it's been three years, but trust me, I know this is not our church. I know this isn't it. I'm certain of that. And whatever aspect of your life you feel like I'm, I'm just kind of exiled. Do you know you're in the wrong place? See, because if you don't know you're in the wrong place, you've got no motive to move. And what I want us to come to today is just the, the reality. Exile is part of a fallen world. Sin intrudes. It dislodges us. We respond inappropriately. God gives some things to us that we could have responded to. We didn't. And our lives are in exile. And God wants us to return. In the next couple of weeks, we're just going to share some things from these guys' lives about how did they return? What was their attitude like? How did they respond? But can I just get us to this place today? And I put some application questions there that you can look through. And covenant group leaders want to make use of some of those things or just in your own time with the Lord. But can you, can you consider in some of these areas, are you in exile? And can we receive from God the hope of the God who is managing your exile? As bad as it is, as much as you caused it, or somebody else, whether, whether you're the disobedient Israelite, or whether you're Nebuchadnezzar, or whether you got a Nebuchadnezzar in your life, somehow the ingredients of what brought you here, God is still managing all of it. And it's an opportunity for his triumph and his glory. Parents, it's an opportunity. Children, it's an opportunity for God's triumph and glory. Your marriage is being being lived in exile right now. It's an opportunity for God to take that thing, put it on the table again, and reform it. Begin to spin that thing once again on the wheel and shape it differently. And cause it to be what he wanted it to be. And you need to have hope that that's the God who's in your life. Well, I don't see how that can happen. Well, the people who knew Nebuchadnezzar knew nothing of Cyrus. But God did. And he knew that he would bring Cyrus when it was the right time. And he would restore it all. That's the God you're walking with right now. Let's stand up together. Lord, last week we looked at the truth in your word. In all things, give thanks. This is the will of God concerning you. Lord, only because we know from your word, every time there's exile and your hands are on it, there's a day of return and restoration. Every time. Lord, exile never ends apart from you. For those who belong to you never does you are managing it you are superintending it you are keeping watch 
over it. And so therefore, God, because we know you are reforming a part of your pleasure in our lives, or therefore we can stand in the midst of a Katrina event and say, thank you, God, thank you for your hands of redemption on my world. We can stand today in problematic relationships and marriages and families that feel like the wheels have come off and there's conflict and problems and stand in the midst of that and we don't even know who Cyrus is but we know you know and we can stand and say thank you God thank you that you are reforming and reshaping my marriage for your glory you are reforming my relationship with my parents or with my children for your glory glory 